Well, if you would take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Ruth chapter 2. And before I read the scripture, verse 2 of that hymn that we just sang truly describes the spiritual act of listening to the preaching of God's word. Listen to it again. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes and the radiance of your purity. The word of God searches us, but it doesn't just search us. It builds us up also. Cause our faith to rise. Cause our eyes to see your majestic love and authority. Words of power that can never fail. Let the truth prevail over unbelief. So if you'll turn to Ruth chapter 2 as we continue our Christmas sermon series through the book of Ruth. And we will read the entire chapter. Please hear the word of God. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. So she, Ruth, set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. 
And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Holy Father, your people have come before your throne of grace in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have come in faith, and we ask now that the Holy Spirit would send forth the word, that he would feed our souls, that he would minister to each of us according to our need. And we do pray that if there be any present among us who know not Christ, that the word of God would search and would divide and would save. And this we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the book Lives Turned Upside Down, author Faith Cook records the story of a young woman named Ruth Clark. Ruth Clark was born into a wealthy family in the mid-18th century, but her father lost the wealth, and he subsequently left the family. And this forced Ruth to enter domestic servitude to help keep the lights on. And she actually turned out to be a very skilled domestic servant. And at 18 years old, she was hired by the Venn household. And the head of that household was the famous Anglican preacher, Henry Venn. And while she was there, Ruth heard the gospel and was converted to Christ. And for the rest of her life, she bore the fruits of true conversion. At 67 years old, she was walking down the street and she was hit by a horse carriage. And she survived, but barely. And while she was on her deathbed, one of, one of Henry Venn's daughters visited her and asked her if she had any doubts about her salvation. And here's how Ruth replied, Oh no, none. He that has loved me all my life through will not forsake me now. I have no rapturous feelings, but I have no fears or doubts. Truth be told, many of God's people often cannot confess in sincerity what Ruth Clark confessed. Oftentimes, our circumstances and our sins combine to create a burden too great for our backs to bear. And if we're honest, sometimes we say, I do have fears and doubts. I am unsure if God will preserve me unto the end. Well, that is the situation that Naomi and Ruth are in in Ruth chapter 2. So what solution does Ruth and Naomi need? What solution do you and I need in such times? What we need is a clear view and a fresh meditation on the steadfast love of God. What we need when our circumstances and our sins weigh us down so that we are consumed with fear and doubt is a clear view of the steadfast love of God. And Ruth chapter 2 is going to provide us with that clear view. What is the steadfast love of God? In Hebrew, it's the word chesed, 
And Yahweh has said it's his white hot, his nature deep, his steel-willed, his heart-throbbing commitment to his people. And Ruth chapter 2 in particular teaches us that the steadfast love of Yahweh is the hound of heaven, which chases after all of God's people. And in Ruth chapter 2, it chases after Naomi and Ruth. It chases after Boaz and throughout the rest of the story, Israel of old. But it doesn't stop there. The steadfast love of God continues to chase after God's people, to chase after all those who are in Christ Jesus. And my hope is that after a fresh sight and meditation upon this steadfast love, we can join with Ruth Clark in confessing, He that has loved me all my life through will not forsake me now. I have no rapturous feelings, but I have no fears or doubts. So let's dive into the text. First, in verses 1 through 4, the author shows us a providential steadfast love. In verses 1 through 4, the author shows us a providential steadfast love. Chapter 1 ended with a striking statement from Naomi. Chapter 1, verse 21, she tells the women of Bethlehem, I went out full, but Yahweh has caused me to return empty. Why do you call me Naomi, which means pleasant? Yahweh has answered against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity against me. Yahweh's providence struck Naomi and her household with judgment when she was in the land of Moab. But now that she has returned, as Pastor Tyler spoke about last week, she has begun to repent. Her circumstances aren't entirely solved quite yet. She is still burdened by her sins, and she is still burdened by her situation. And it's often the case that when we are burdened with such things, we are self-consumed, and we cannot see the big picture. And such is the case with Naomi here. Because she says in that verse, I've returned empty. But what she doesn't realize is that she hasn't returned empty. Who has returned with her? Ruth, her faithful daughter-in-law, who has converted to Yahweh and has sworn an oath to death to be faithful to Naomi. But Naomi is self-consumed in her plight, and she fails to recognize that she has not returned empty. And it's often the case, brothers and sisters, that when we are in the deepest pit, whether due to sin or circumstances, if we're in Christ, we are right on the threshold of blessing. And such is the case with Naomi. Naomi, for all intents and purposes, has undergone death. In the land of Moab, she was cut off from Yahweh. With the death of her husband and her two sons, she was cut off financially and socially. For all intents and purposes, she is dead. But Yahweh will not leave her dead. He will infuse new life into Naomi. And if we are united to Jesus Christ, we too have died and we will rise again. And so chapter 2 is going to set the scene for this new life. Chapter 1, verse 22 says, They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest, which is late April or early May in our calendars. Now, chapter 1 opens with a new piece of information. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, this is a surprising announcement. Because all we know at the end of chapter 1 is that Naomi and Ruth's situation is bleak. 
at best. But the introduction of this character, a kinsman, would have pricked the ears of all good law-memorizing Israelites. They would have remembered the kinsman-redeemer laws and the Mosaic law. You can read these in Leviticus 25. We won't read them this morning. But what were these kinsman-redeemer laws? One commentator says this, The nearest adult male blood relative was to serve as an advocate for any vulnerable and or unfortunate clan member in order to corrupt any disruption to clan wholeness, well-being, or peace, especially through the redemption or restoration of property, persons, or lineage. So the kinsman-redeemer laws existed to preserve clan, wholeness, peace, shalom. So what is the Israelite clan? Another commentator says this, The clan was a social unit that stood between the tribe and the extended family. So you have the nation, you have tribes, you have a clan, and then extended family, so on and so forth. All those who belonged to the same clan claimed descent from a common ancestor, usually one of the grandsons of Jacob or Israel. The clan was possibly the most important single group in the social structure of ancient Israel. It set the bounds of recognized kinship and formed the basic endogamic unit of society, endogamy, meaning Israelites typically married within the same clan. And so the kinsman-redeemer laws existed to preserve the unity, the purity of the clans and the nation of Israel. And if we just take a step back and look at this from a macro or whole Bible perspective, why would Yahweh give these laws? Why is it necessary for the clan to be preserved? Because Yahweh had promised Abraham that the Messiah would come from his loins. He had promised that the Messiah would come from the nation of Israel. And if the clans fall apart, the nation falls apart. And if the nation falls apart, the Messiah does not come. So quite literally, what is at stake is, it, is the salvation of the world. And I won't steal from Pastor Thomas's thunder, but we will see that in Ruth chapter 4 at the genealogy at the end of Ruth. So, the author introduces Boaz as within the bounds of Naomi's clan. He is within the bounds of the same clan that Elimelech was in. What does this mean? This means that Boaz meets the most basic qualification to be able to redeem Naomi and Ruth. So right at the start of this, of this scene in Ruth chapter 2, the author present, he teases us. He says, redemption is possible for Naomi and Ruth. But the question that he leaves unanswered at the end of verse 1 is, will Boaz redeem Naomi and Ruth? So the text continues in verse 2. Ruth politely asks Naomi permission to glean in the field behind the harvesters. Remember, Naomi heard that Yahweh visited his people with bread, and so they come at the beginning of barley harvest. And because you are all good students of the Old Testament, you remember Yahweh's stipulations for the poor during harvest season. Deuteronomy 24, verse 19. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. 
And you can find all these types of commands all across the Mosaic Law. But I want you to notice the logic of the command for generosity. The generosity of God's people stems from the redemption of God's people. Yahweh's generosity to Israel is the motivation for Israel's generosity to the poor. And this same logic is used in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The generosity of God's people stems from the redemption of God's people. But apparently, Israel had forgotten Yahweh's generosity, and they weren't too good at obeying this commandment. This is why Ruth says in chapter 2, or verse 2, She will glean after him in whose sight I shall find favor. In other words, Naomi, please let me go and glean in a field with a man that will give me permission to glean. Permission? Ruth didn't need permission. The only permission she needed was Yahweh's, and he had given it in the law. The fact of the matter is, most Israelites were stingy. Because Ruth came back to Israel in the days when the judges ruled. Days of widespread apostasy and covenant disobedience. And that is one of the marks of an apostate and disobedient generation, is an unwillingness to be generous to the poor. So what about our day? What about the reformed churches in America? What about our church? What about you? Yahweh showed abundant grace to Israel in redeeming them from Egypt. He has shown super abundant grace in redeeming us from hell. Shall we not imitate this great generosity to others, to the underprivileged, to the poor, to the orphan, and to the widow. And especially this time of year, as we celebrate the incarnation of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, Though he was in the form of God, though he existed as God, he did not regard being seen as God, something that he had to grasp a hold of, but emptied himself, not of his divinity, but by taking on man's nature. Jesus Christ was the God of the universe, and he brushed shoulders with people that did not recognize him. But that wasn't the end of his service and his giving. He humbled himself further unto death on the cross to save us, brothers and sisters. And so may we heed his words. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So the text continues in verse 3. If you look at verse 3, it says that Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Verse 4 continues, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. One translation at the end of verse 3 reads, And it so happened that she happened to come, or, And it so chanced that she chanced to come to Boaz's field. One Hebrew scholar translates the beginning, the beginning of verse 4, Wouldn't you know it? Or, and of course, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So verses 3 and 4 should probably read something like this. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to chance to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Verse 4, and wouldn't you know it? Boaz came 
from Bethlehem. Why is the author speaking in this way? The author is trying to get us to see, look at Yahweh's providence. Look how fascinating is the providence of God. God is not bland. He is not boring. His providence is fascinating. And we should be in awe of him for it. And yet, notice the nature of this providence. It's hidden. It's quiet. But it's firm. And it's resolute. And it is orchestrating the scene so that Yahweh's steadfast love will bless Ruth and Naomi. And you can uh, hear all types of stories about this type of thing in church history. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once recounted a story from early in his ministry. He was invited to preach at the Crystal Palace in London. And over 20,000 people were there to hear him preach. How about that? And the, this place was known for its acoustics. It had special acoustics on the tall ceilings. And so uh, Charles Spurgeon wanted to go and test the acoustics before he was going to preach. So he got there a few days before, and he got his pulpit situated, and he cried out one sentence. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. And he left. And what he didn't know was that there was a worker there who had no idea what was going on, who heard those words. And he was cut to the quick. And he went home, and he wrestled with God, and he was converted. And when he was on his deathbed, he recounted that story. And similar stories abound for you and I, brothers and sisters. God's hand is quiet, but it is firm. And it orchestrates the scenes of our lives, often when we don't realize it. And in stories like Ruth's and Naomi's, and stories like Charles Spurgeon's, and in our own stories... God wants us to look back and see his providential hand and bless him for it. And this is what the author wants us to see in verses 1 through 4. He wants us to see that God's steadfast love, as it were, controls his providence for his people and works all things for their good. That's the first thing the author wants us to see. Second, the author wants us to see an exemplary steadfast love in verses 4 through 17. The author wants us to see an exemplary steadfast love in verses 4 through 17. And it's often the case in life that we need real life examples to know how we ought to live. We need people that we can imitate. This was the case in the War for Independence. George Washington apparently was the perfect choice for commander-in-chief. One general wrote of him, General Washington has arrived amongst us, universally admired. Joy was visible on every countenance, and it seemed as if the spirit of conquest breathed through the whole army. One physician wrote this, He has so much martial dignity in his deportment that you would distinguish him to be a general and soldier from among 10,000 people. John Adams wrote to his wife, This appointment of George Washington to be the general will have great effect in cementing and securing the union of these colonies. And George Washington himself wrote to his wife, Far from seeking this appointment, I have used every endeavor in my power to avoid it. It has been a kind of destiny that has thrown me upon this service. Why was he praised so much? Why was he admired? Because Washington was a living embodiment of the cause for independence. Because the nation wanted people to look to him 
to see what it was like to fight for independence. And we also see this in the scriptures. We see imperfect yet sincere and real human examples of the Lord's steadfast love. In theology, we call this the communicable attributes, that there are perfections in God that can be uh, imitated by finite human creatures. And in Ruth chapter 2, we see two of these examples in Boaz and Ruth. They are examples of the steadfast love of God. And so if we study Boaz and Ruth, we will learn something about God's steadfast love. So first, Boaz. Look at verse 1. He's described as a worthy man. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Other translations probably hit closer to the mark by calling him a mighty man. So what does this mean? One commentator writes, In its simplest sense, the expression means man of substance or wealth, hence a man of standing in the community. Boaz is no ordinary run-of-the-mill Israelite. On the other hand, the name can also mean noble with respect to character. So the author tells us in verse 1 that Boaz is a wealthy man, but that he is also a righteous man. And this hint of his wealth and righteousness becomes an indelible impression as we go through the narrative. Look at verse 4. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Could you imagine going to work and your boss saying, Yahweh bless you. What a great boss, right? Boaz is fair to his workers. He's also generous to Ruth. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. He's generous to Ruth. Look at verses 15 and 16. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. His, Boaz's generosity to Ruth exceeds what the law required. The law required, don't completely graze down your field. Let the poor get what's left. Boaz goes even farther. He basically elevates Ruth to be a reaper. And even more, he tells his reapers to leave extra sheaves of grain out so that Ruth can get them. Even more, usually in that patriarchal society, the women would draw water for the men, but he tells his men, draw water for Ruth. He's fair to his workers, he's generous to Ruth, and he is willing to break with social conventions. He invites Ruth, who is a Moabite, to table fellowship with his fellow harvesters who are Jews. And even more, he gives her more than enough food. She eats so much for lunch that she's satisfied and has some left over. Look at verse 14. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. Boaz is wealthy and righteous. He's fair to his workers. He's generous to Ruth, and he's willing to break with social conventions to extend unity. 
Boaz is truly a class act. But why does Boaz act like this? Why does Boaz honor Ruth? She asked this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And verses 11 and 12 is Boaz's answer. This is why Boaz honors Ruth. Look at verses 11 and 12. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz honors Ruth because Ruth honors the Lord. Do you remember the story of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 uh, through chapter 4? You'll remember that his sons were disregarding the sacrificial system. They were disregarding the sanctity of their priestly duties. And Eli was not doing anything to restrain his sons. And Yahweh told Eli, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now... Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Boaz honors Ruth because Yahweh honors Ruth. Boaz is acting like this because this is how Yahweh is. The living God honors those who honor him, and he despises those who despise him. And in fact, Boaz is not just an imitation of Yahweh, but he is an instrument of Yahweh to bring blessing to Ruth. And we'll see that in chapters 3 and 4. My fellow men and dear brothers, are you a righteous man in practice like Boaz was? Are you generous to the poor? Are you fair to those that you work with? Are you willing to break with social conventions to extend Christian unity? And brothers, living in the South, we must be very careful. There is a lie that our Southern culture believes, teaches, preaches, that if you're just a good old boy, then you're okay. Our Southern culture equates being, equates being a Christian with being a good old boy. Beware, brothers. The road, the path is broad that leads to hell. And there are many good old boys who go down it. Having a southern personality does not equal being a Christian. So let us be Christian men, not just in profession, but in practice as well. So second, the second example, Ruth. Ruth is an industrious or hardworking woman. In verse 2, she takes the initiative in gleaning. And in verse 7, the foreman tells, tells Boaz that she has been working all morning until the midday meal. And then verse 17 concludes that she gleaned in the field until evening. So Ruth works from sunup to sundown with very little breaks. Ruth is a respectful woman. In verse 2, she submits to Naomi's authority. She asks permission to glean. And then in verse 7, she asked the foreman's permission to glean, which is not something that she had to do according to the law, but she's respectful. 
And verse 10, after Boaz has showered her with generosity, she falls on her face in thankfulness and then expresses that thankfulness to him in verse 13. Ruth is also a modest woman, and she is a humble woman. In verse 13, she calls herself Boaz's servant. And she also evidences her her humility by being asked to join table fellowship. She doesn't place herself at the table. She's asked to come to the table. Ruth is a hardworking woman. She um, She is a modest woman. I already forgot the second one. And she's a respectful woman. And again, we can ask the same thing of Ruth that we asked of Boaz. Why does Ruth act this way? Why does Ruth act this way? And again, verses in 11 and 12 are the key. Ruth behaves this way because she has been converted. She has turned from idols to the living God. And that repentance always manifests fruit. And we see that fruit in Ruth. So my dear sisters in the Lord, are you a righteous woman in practice like Ruth was? Again, we must be very careful in our southern culture. We must not be deceived that by being a good old boy or being a southern gal that we are automatically Christians. Brothers and sisters, let us be men and women who don't just profess the name of Christ, but also bear the fruits that accompany that profession. Dale Ralph Davis writes the following. He says, Our culture does not help us to smash our graven image of the casual God. Our culture proclaims that God must be the essence of tolerance. He is chummy rather than holy the man upstairs, rather than my father for Jesus' sake. So long as our novelty license plates declare that God is my co-pilot, we can be sure that we have not yet seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Brothers and sisters, let us learn from Boaz and Ruth, and let us be shining examples of righteousness in our southern culture. But... Although Boaz and Ruth are examples that we can and should learn from, this is not all they are. If I were to stop my exposition there, I would be doing your soul a disservice. This story in Ruth chapter 2, indeed the whole book of Ruth, is more than just a story, more than just an example to imitate. It's a type. It's a preparation that has an anti-type, that has a fulfillment that is greater than itself. Turn, if you will, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, verse 21. After rebuking the Pharisees for their traditions and their commandments, which nullifies the word of God, Jesus travels to Tyre and Sidon, a Gentile region. And he's unable to keep the news of his arrival contained. And so a Gentile woman approaches him in the house. Look at what she says in verse 22. She was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. This is a Gentile woman. She is outside of the physical covenant community. And yet, 
She acknowledges the divinity of Jesus. She calls him Lord. She identifies him with Yahweh. And she also acknowledges that he is the Messiah. You might say that she has an understanding of one person, two natures. She calls him the son of David. And she's crying out for mercy to Jesus. And look how Jesus responds. Verse 23, But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. The disciples come to him and say, Do something. We're annoyed with this woman. And she is persistent. Verse 24, He, Jesus, answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He seems to tell this Gentile woman, no. Does she go away? Verse 25, But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Talking about Gentiles who were called dogs. They were outside the covenant community. And listen to her response in verse 27. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. What's the point of this episode in Matthew chapter 15? Well, this woman is not a Jew, and so she does not share the temporal privileges that came with being an ethnic Jew. She's a dog. Yet, she's a house dog. Though she is not physically Jewish, she belongs to the Messiah's house. Though she is a dog, she shares the same master. She shares the same bread. And she shares the same table fellowship with the children. And this is what she says in verse 27. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Brothers and sisters, you and I are that woman in Matthew chapter 15. You and I are Ruth. We are Gentiles that were born outside of the physical covenant community of Israel. And yet you and I are offered bread at the table of the Lord. We are offered salvation. How can this be? Because you and I have a Boaz. We have somebody that was greater than Boaz, that in himself abolished the wall of circumcision that separated Jews from Gentiles. And Jew and Gentile are made one new man in this greater Boaz and reconciled to the Father. Because our greater Boaz is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the grace that is shown to this Canaanite woman, the grace that is shown to Ruth, is a picture of, of the grace that comes to all of God's people through faith in Jesus Christ. The grace that is shown in seed form in the Old Covenant becomes a California redwood in the New Covenant. And so the grace that is administered partially in the Old Covenant reaches international proportions in the New Covenant. So these verses do not only show us Boaz and Ruth who are imperfect examples of the steadfast love of God. They lead us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is in himself the steadfast love of God made incarnate. And if you are united to this Lord Jesus Christ, 
you are a recipient of the steadfast love of God. And may I say this as a warning. If you are not united to Jesus Christ, you are not a recipient of the love of God. You do not have the love of God within yourself. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged that if you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, the steadfast love of God is the hound of heaven which chases after your soul and will follow you all the days of your life so that you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And if you refuse to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have no excuse. And you will be cast into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So first, the author showed us, secondly, the author showed us an exemplary steadfast love in verses 4 through 17. And then finally, in verses 18 through 23, the author shows us a patient steadfast love. Thirdly and finally, the author shows us a patient steadfast love in verses 18 through 23. Look with me at verse 18. And she, Ruth, took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. So Ruth wraps up her long day of work and she returns home to Naomi. And we can imagine the surprise of Naomi. Remember, Naomi is probably depressed and worried because she's not sure what what success Ruth is going to have. And yet she sees Ruth barge through the door with enough barley to last both of them more than a week. That's how much an ephah of barley was. And verse 19 indicates that she is surprised. And you start to see life come back to Naomi. Look at verse 19. She says, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And really at this point in the narrative, the author is teasing us. Because Naomi has no idea that it is Boaz a potential kinsman redeemer that's responsible for Ruth's success. And while Ruth is the one who knows Boaz, she has no clue who Boaz is, that he's a potential kinsman redeemer. So each woman has information that the other woman doesn't have. And so Ruth reveals who her benefactor is at the end of verse 19. She said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And the lights turn on for Naomi. And in verse 20, verse 20 is a transition in the mood of the entire story. Look at verse 20. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Now whose kindness or steadfast love is Naomi referring to in this verse? Is she referring to Yahweh's steadfast love? Or Boaz's steadfast love. Commentators and Hebrew scholars are divided. But whichever the case, there could be deliberate ambiguity here. Naomi is emphasizing not only that Boaz imitates Yahweh's steadfast love, but Boaz is an instrument of Yahweh's steadfast love. And we will see that as the story continues. But with all the excitement, we might forget that Naomi and Ruth's basic problem has only been temporarily solved. This chapter closes on a cliffhanger. Ruth reports to Naomi in verse 21, Besides, he said to me, Boaz, 
You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And so in verse 23, she, Ruth, kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of barley and wheat harvests, which would have been a period of about two months. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The scene closes on a cliffhanger. So far in chapters 1 and 2, we've traveled from apostasy in Moab to repentance in Bethlehem, from hard work in the fields to an unexpected blessing from a potential kinsman redeemer. Clearly, the steadfast love of God is beginning to dawn on Naomi and Ruth. But their problem is only temporarily solved. The question is, what happens at the end of this harvest? Will Boaz redeem Ruth and Naomi? Even if he does redeem Ruth and Naomi, what about the line of Elimelech? Will he, Boaz, a wealthy and righteous man in Israel, really marry a Moabite woman? And the answer to those questions have yet to be seen. But I think the way that this chapter closes teaches us an important lesson about the ways of God. He doesn't usually work according to our timetables. I'm reminded of the story of Adoniram Judson, the famous Baptist missionary. He was born and raised in New England, and he was raised by congregational parents. His dad was a congregational, a conservative congregational minister. And his father had big dreams for Adoniram. He wanted Adoniram to be an accomplished man in his education, and he wanted him to be a minister. But his dad was somewhat austere and strict. And so he went off to what is now known as Brown University for his college education. And while he was there, Adoniram apostatized from the faith, chiefly through the influence of a close friend by the name of Jacob Eames. So Adoniram is living a secret life to his parents. He knows he's not a Christian. His friends know he's not a Christian. He comes home after graduation, and his conscience cannot handle living a lie. And so he tells his parents, he says, your God is not my God. And this uh, breaks his parents' heart. And he leaves home to go to New York City for business prospects, but he fails. And so he wants to come back home to mom and dad. But he's still unwilling to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And so on the way back home, he stays at an inn in New England. And he's rooming, uh, in his room, the, the room adjacent to his room is a man who's staying there and he's dying. And throughout the night, Adoniram hears his groans, his coughs, his pains. And Adoniram is, is troubled by this. He's shaken by this. And so the next morning, he, he goes to the innkeeper to settle up and he says, how's the, the man doing? And the man said, he died in the middle of the night. And Adoniram is shook and he says, well, who was he? He says, oh, he was a young man from the college in Providence. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. And Adoniram is shocked. He is struck to the core. And this began a period of wrestling for Adoniram. And I think it was a little over a year. But he wrote in his journal about a year later that he began to entertain a hope of having received the regenerating influences of the Holy Spirit and on the second day of December, he wrote in his journal that he made a solemn dedication of himself 
to God. God's love, his purpose, didn't work according to Mr. Judson's timetable. He had great dreams for his son, that he would be converted to Christ and a great minister of Christ. And those dreams were fulfilled, but they were fulfilled in a way that he did not expect. And that is often the case of God's dealings with his people. He does not operate according to our timetables, brothers and sisters. In a word, his steadfast love is patient. And yet this is the God who is not afraid to be identified with Adoniram Judson, to be identified with Ruth the Moabite, with Naomi, with Boaz, with Israel of old, and with you and with me if we be in Christ Jesus. This is the Lord's steadfast love. It is providential, it is exemplary, and it is patient, and it is the hound of heaven. And a fresh look at it and meditation on it can cause us to say with Ruth Clark, he that has loved me all my life through will not forsake me now. I have no rapturous feelings, but I have no fears or doubts. Let's pray. Holy Father, you revealed yourself to Moses of old, that you were merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And we know that your steadfast love is constant and unchanging towards all those who are in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that your people would have a fresh look at your steadfast love, that we may be ministered unto in our struggles against sin, our struggles and our circumstances, that we may be borne up in our afflictions. I pray that unbelievers may catch a glimpse of the loveliness of your covenant faithfulness to your people and so that they may say, I want that. I want Jesus Christ. Father, may you be glorified for the greatness of your love. For it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.